The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Acts 15, verses 1 through 11. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, First, I don't, I don't see Andy sing out, Andy will sing out there, but if, if you are out there, Andy, very grateful for you uh, leading us in worship today. And you know you live in Nashville when, when a, a celebrated uh, artist leads you in worship, and part of how he does that is he chooses a couple of songs written by other Nashville artists to lead people in worship. We sang one from Keith Getty, uh, who lives in Green Hills, and Taylor Linhart, who is one of the the uh, 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 sort of rising uh, new uh, talents in Nashville, and it just reminds me what a, what a privilege it is to, to get to serve and worship in a city like this and from a city like this that, that exports uh, so much uh, kingdom impact and influence. And uh, uh, grateful to be with you, especially today. This is actually uh, my 10th year anniversary Sunday, uh, serving as Pastor Christ Prez. Um, I, I mean, I appreciate that, but I, I probably owe you some applause too for putting up with me for 10 years. Uh, really grateful. Uh, it, it actually has been one of the top honors and joys of my life to get to, to serve this community and, and to do so in this uh, wonderful, life-giving city, and look forward to the next 10, God willing, uh, together. As uh, my friend Richard Anderson often says, I've got a lot of gas left in the tank and uh, still got a lot more work to do. Uh, and uh, so in 2012, 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago today, uh, we as a community put a stake in the ground 
uh, and agreed together. Those of you, of you who were here at that time may remember this. We, we agreed together to continue what was at that time a 30-year legacy of centering all of our teaching, our life, our ministry, our outreach, our inreach, our upreach around the unchanging truth of Scripture and around uh, the unwavering grace and mercy and kindness of Jesus Christ, who is our center, who is our captain, who is our true senior pastor and leader and our master and our, our Savior. We're going to keep doing that, and uh, we're also going to keep doing another thing that we committed to do 10 years ago, and that is, if Jesus would welcome them, so will we. If Jesus would welcome them, so will we. John chapter 13, Jesus actually tells us this is, this is part of the witness of the church of Jesus Christ, and he said this to a group of, of uh, people who had very different personalities from one another, very different, uh, different ethnicities, different politics even. Uh, he says, by this, everybody's going to know that you follow me, by this, that you love each other. And that was a loaded statement because you loving each other meant loving even across the lines of difference. Now, what better time than now, 2022, in the Western Hemisphere to renew that same division, uh, or, or, or renew that same vision when, when the world has never been more divided, at least our world in, in the Western Hemisphere has never been more divided, at least in my time, never been more turning against and in on itself in my lifetime than it is now. And so what better time to put our stake in the ground again to be counterculture to that, to be a place that welcomes sinners and sufferers and eats with them, just like Jesus did. If Jesus would welcome them, so will we. If Jesus will open the door and his table, so will we. Sinners and sufferers. So at our all-staff meeting every week on uh, Tuesdays, we uh, include a, a time of looking into Scripture, into the Scriptures together, and also looking ahead to the things we're going to all talk about at all our, our different four campuses the coming Sunday. And last week, it was Pastor Micah Edmondson's turn to give the devotional, and uh, Micah is the pastor of our North Nashville congregation uh, called CPC Koinonia. And he told us the parable, what he called the parable of the giraffe and the elephant. And it goes like this. A giraffe has a beautiful home, and he invites his friend, the elephant, to come visit him. As you would imagine, the, the ceilings are very tall because giraffes are very tall and the door is very narrow because giraffes are narrow creatures. And the elephant discovers as he's trying to get in that the only thing he can get into the door is his head. And, and even then, it, it's hard work just to get his head into the door. And he says to his friend, the giraffe, I can't get through the door. And so the giraffe says, oh, that's no problem. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a woodworker. That's one of my hobbies. I'll just remove the hinges on the door. We'll widen it for you. And it got, barely, it got it barely wide enough for the elephant to fit in. And so the elephant comes in. And every step the elephant takes, the giraffe hears a crack in the floor because the giraffe didn't build the house for creatures that heavy. 
And so the giraffe is starting to get irritated, and the elephant can read the irritation on the giraffe's face and in his body language. And the elephant says, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm just trying to make myself at home like you invited me to. And then the giraffe says, well, one of the ways that you'll be able to enjoy my home better is if maybe you take some aerobics and, and maybe also a ballet class so you lose some of that weight because you know you're really packing it on. And my, my house isn't built for heavy creatures. And of course, that made the elephant sad, and the elephant said, well, I'm, I'm, it's not in my nature to be thin. It's not in my nature to do aerobics. I guess I'll never fit into a house that's designed for a giraffe. Now, the point is obvious. Faithful giraffes who want to create hospitable space and welcoming space for elephants are going to build wide doors and concrete floors. And faithful elephants who want to make room in the house for tall, slender giraffes are going to have tall ceilings. So rewind to the first century church. There were some narrow doors by people who had lived in the house for centuries after building it according to their own specifications. And there'd been no renovations, no updates, no real thinking about outsiders, except that outsiders are welcome to come in as long as they become like us. And if they become like us, then we can all live in this house together. They called it the temple. And so these narrow doors express themselves in a, in a few ways behavioral, cultural, and or both. And so, so what I want to do is go through both of those uh, ways that we create doors, sometimes not even realizing we're creating doors that are too narrow for those that Jesus would welcome in. Uh, we'll talk first about behavioral judgments that we tend to make, and then cultural judgments we can tend to make, the end of judgment, and then the judge who bore our judgment. So let's start with behavioral judgment. Notice the repeat use of the word party. The circumcision party. The party of the Pharisees. There's a, a certain spirit happening here that you could call the party spirit. And, and it comes out this way. It, it, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so, so someone from the circumcision party says this, Unless you're circumcised, according to the law of Moses, you can't be saved. You can't be part of the family of God. You can't eat around our table unless you get circumcised according to the law of Moses. Now, now there's a, if there was ever a, a super circumcised person, it was a man called Saul of Tarsus who would later become the Apostle Paul. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 9. He and his good, loyal, faithful, kind-hearted, encouraging friend Barnas took issue with that statement. And they took it to the highest court, the leaders at the church in Jerusalem. And that church at the time was being led by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, and the apostle Peter, 
who followed Jesus as one of the 12 disciples for three solid years, was also in leadership there. And it says that the party of the Pharisees, when, when Paul and Barnabas arrive to seek a judgment on this statement that they thought was foolish, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved, the party of the Pharisees rise up and double down. That's what the party spirit does when it feels threatened. It rises up and it doubles down. And here's what they say. It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, how many of you have been ordered into love for Jesus Christ? How many of you have been demanded into glad, joyful surrender? I've been at this a long time. I'm still waiting to meet those people. You know, they say, remember, the party spirit says it's necessary to, to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Who is them? It's the Gentiles. So ever since Pentecost, which took place in chapter 2, there's been this influx into the church, which once was comprised of people from one nation, one ethnicity, one way of thinking, one culture, one people with one history. And all of a sudden, all of these Gentiles from different nations and languages and cultures and diets, eating habits, etc., there's an influx into the church. But to, to the to the old guard, to those with the party spirit, this influx felt like an invasion. What are we going to do with all these elephants? They're cracking our floors. They're, they're, they're requiring us, their, their very presence is requiring us to renovate the entry point to our house as if it was ever their house. It's the Lord's house. And Peter reminds them of, so, of, of something that took place earlier in the book of Acts. And at this point, it would have been 10 years prior to this incident. And that was the Cornelius incident. You remember when we talked about that incident in church a few weeks ago, where God appears to Peter in a vision and says, I'm op essentially, I'm opening up my whole world and, and, and therefore your whole world also to the Gentiles. And, and the first step toward that is I want you to go preach Jesus to a man named Cornelius who's waiting for you. And Cornelius is a, a centurion. He's a, he's, a, he's a Gentile soldier. And so Peter is referring here back to that incident, and he says this ten years later, brothers, you know that from the early days God made a choice among you that my mouth that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Why are you then putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? He's referring to Gentiles as the disciples, that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. In other words, why are we judging by laws that we don't even keep? Why are we creating barriers for people that Jesus has removed all the barriers? 
Why are we forgetting that the law of God was never meant to save us by our ability to measure up to it, because nobody can measure up to it. The law has become a tutor, an educator to lead us to Christ. And and the, the primary thing that the law does is it destroys any notion that we might have that we could ever live up to it. Because as as James, the half-brother of, of Jesus, would write, whoever keeps the entire law of God but breaks it at just one point is guilty of breaking the whole thing. Perfection is the bar. Perfection isn't the goal, it's the starting point. If you want the law of Moses to save you, The law of Moses is a tutor that leads us to Christ, and the way it does that is it makes us feel our need for a a substitute, for somebody to take the hit in our place, for somebody to pay the penalty, for somebody to stand in the gap, for somebody to give us a record that we didn't achieve. That is Jesus Christ alone, Peter is saying. And so Peter says, no, here is the true message of salvation. If somebody wants to be saved, which is just another it's a biblical way of saying if somebody wants to be in relationship with God, if somebody wants to be in the family of God, a son or a daughter of God, forgiven and free, if you want to be saved, you have to have two things, Jesus and nothing else. And if you don't have both Jesus and nothing else, you cannot be saved. Because as soon as you add your own contribution to his complete contribution, you eliminate yourself. You narrow the door, you you actually close the door to yourself. You create a door and then you close it to yourself. Jesus and nothing else is what gets you in. We're all susceptible to, to drawing these boundaries, aren't we? You remember in my 20s, I was in my mid-20s, I was, I'd been a, a Christian for maybe a couple of years at this time, and some church was crazy enough to hire me to be its student ministries director. I only knew enough to be really dangerous at this time, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But first, I want to tell you how excited I am that we have a different kind of student ministry here at Christ Pres than the one that Scott Sauls led some 30 years ago so fired up for the future of our student ministry. But in my 20s, I was distressed one day because, you know, I was going to church and I was walking from my car in the parking lot to the church door, and one of the deacons was in the parking lot smoking. And my spirit said, this is wrong. He's smoking. And then later that week, one of the elders in the church invited me over to dinner with his family, and he offered me a beer. And I said, this is wrong. He offered me a beer. And so I reached out to the pastor, and I said, Pastor, I'm confused. I don't understand. I was converted in a tradition that said you don't drink, smoke, chew, or run around with those who do. 1 Corinthians 6.19, pastor, says that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we have a leader in the church smoking and another leader in the church drinking. And this pastor was so patient with me. 
He said, did you know about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest English-speaking preachers of all time, basically chain-smoked cigars all day long? Did you know that C.S. Lewis, while he wrote Mere Christianity and the Screwtape Letters and the Great Divorce, etc., etc., chain-smoked his way through all of those books? Did you know R.C. Sproul did the same thing while writing all of these wonderful books about Reformed theology? Heavy smoker, R.C. Sproul. Did you know about David Filson? He actually didn't say that because <laughs> David, like me, was, David was playing in a hair band with like the, the, the Texas tuxedo denim on denim at that point in time. You got to see the pictures someday. And he also said, did you know about Jesus? Did you know about his first public miracle, turning water into wine after people had already had wine and he says, I know, you're going to say, well, you know, some people say it was grape juice. Well, let me tell you this. If it was grape juice, why does the Bible say don't get drunk with wine? When's the last time your mama told you not to get drunk on that grape juice? <laughs> Same word in both passages of Scripture. And then he pressed harder. Okay, Scott, body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to take care of the body? Absolutely. So you're in youth ministry. Tell me on the average week. How much pizza and fast food do you eat, and how much soda do you drink? And I was like, oh, I think he's starting to get through to me. And he continued, and this is how the faithful pastor finished that conversation. He said, everything, you go all the way back to the beginning, everything God created is good. And everything, if it's legal, is there to be enjoyed in moderation. And as my friend Grant sometimes says, even excess should be enjoyed in moderation, right? Maybe that's why the Bible is filled with, with, with the invitation to feast. God judges by outward appearance, not by outward appearance, but, but by what's in the heart. And so this party spirit, you know, the Bible, the Bible holds up the person who's poor in spirit, but the person with a party spirit is, is more, uh, as some say, middle class in spirit. And the middle class in spirit, the Pharisee spirit, the party spirit, the circumcision spirit, separates the world between the good people and the bad people, but, but Christianity separates the world between the proud people and the humble people. The people who try to add something to what Christ has done or try to replace what Christ has done, and the people who know that, that the only thing that they're allowed to possess is no more and no less than two things, Jesus and nothing else. So those are the behavioral judgments that we're prone to make, but then cultural judgments, right? This, this brings us back to the parable of the giraffe and the elephant. Legalism, which is kind of a cuss word among Christians, legalism is just as much cultural as it is behavioral. It's just as much the list of expectations that we set up for our community and friendships as it is, you know, saying this, this, this is you know, the word of this is the law of Moses. So, the law of Moses is given to us in three parts. The first is the moral part. That's the part that we are still beholden to. That's the Ten Commandments and everything in the Scripture that flows from the principles given to us in the Ten Commandments. And why does that still remain in place? Well, it's not a means of salvation. I hope I've already convinced you of that. But it's a means of flourishing. 
because the Ten Commandments are actually an expression of what God is like. And we're created in the image of God. So in the same way that a car can only run on gasoline, a human being can only run and flourish in a healthy, sustainable way on the Word of God. That's why Jesus referred to the Scriptures as His own food and drink. And it's meant to be ours as well, sweeter than honey, as the Psalms remind us. So there's the moral law, but then this was, this was where, where the, the, the party people wanted the Gentiles to get in line. Not just the moral law, but the civil law. So remember, tracing all the way back, Israel was a single nation with a single ethnicity led by a theocratic government, which means the Bible was their, the law of their land, specifically the Old Testament but now the church filled with the Holy Spirit is, is, is also a kingdom, but, but it, it's transcultural. It's transnational. It's not contained with any specific culture or, or with any specific you know, nation or tribe or tongue or people group or ethnicity or economic bracket, etc. It's transcultural. As Peter called it, a holy nation that inhabits all nations and is a sign of God's grace to all nations everywhere. But then the third expression of the law was ceremonial, and that's the rituals, the dietary laws, the calendar, the rigorous calendar that, that you had to keep in order to, to identify yourself as a good cultural Jewish man, woman, or child. And while those laws are fine, just like it's fine to you know, eat chicken. Those laws are fine if that's what you do, or if what you do is play, you know, Settlers of Gatan, or if what you do is go to watch concerts, or if what you do is travel a lot, or if what you do is, is I don't know, fill in the blank. That's your culture, and that's cool, and that's okay, so become, in the name of Christ, the best version of your own culture. But as soon as we impose things on other people, that Christ doesn't impose on them. That's when we're falling into the party spirit. Cultural judgments. But then there's the end of judgment. You know, Luke 18, there's this, there's this statement that we bring up every now and then. Verse 9, where it says that Jesus spoke to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on other people with contempt. And then he told a parable about one man with the, with the party spirit who prayed, God, I thank you that I'm like, not like other people. I'm not ro a robber, an evildoer, an adulterer, or a tax collector. And then the other person in the parable is a tax collector. And so Jesus sends the first person home condemned because he's depending on himself. The second person, he prays this way, God have mercy on me, the sinner. The definite article is in the original text, the, which means he has no awareness or concerns about other people and whether or not they're measuring up to this or that. All he's concerned about is the gap that exists between a holy God and his own broken sinful self. And what does he ask for? He asks for mercy. Mercy. He's so aware of his need for grace 
And he's also aware enough of God's provision of grace that, that he doesn't have thought of, of comparing himself to others. He's just asking, hey, can I belong too? I've heard rumors that somebody like me can belong. Is it true? And, and it says that Jesus says, absolutely, it is true. You know, the apostles Peter and Paul never got past this, that, that, the, the, that the situation for an awakened, aware Christian is that you are always aware that you are both a saint in the sight of God and a sinner in need of grace. Always, simultaneously, those things. You know, Luther coined the phrase first, simultaneously saint and sinner, or simultaneously et peccator. Now, Peter, in his writings, for example, refers back to all of Paul's writings as the very Word of God. And you know, part of Paul's writings was Galatians chapter 2, where it says that Paul publicly opposed Peter to his face for falling back into the party spirit. Peter says, I want you to even listen to that part that kind of throws me under the bus because you need to hear it. We all need reminding that the party spirit is not the spirit of Christ. But then there's Paul, the very end of his life. He still can't get over it. He still can't get over it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But let that be an example, a picture of, of, of how the mercy of God is available and accessible to anyone and everyone. That God's door, door isn't just wide enough. God doesn't have a door for people who have Jesus and nothing else. They never got past that. And the spiritual effect was an abiding thankfulness and humility and, and an eagerness to obey even to the death. You know, these guys used to secretly resent the law of God because they knew they couldn't keep it, up, keep it up and keep up with it. But now that they had been freed from their imperfect, broken past, now that their judgment day has been moved from their future to the past when Christ took care of their judgment on the cross in their place, now that they're in that position... The moral law of God, things like the Ten Commandments and stuff that proceeds from it, becomes a want to, not a have to. It becomes something that motivates instead of something that you fear or something that you dread or something that you avoid. I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful how the Scriptures, when, when, when people come alive to the mercy and kindness of God, the adulterer, murderer David, for example, you know, talking about the... the how the Word of God, the commands of God are, are, are not burdensome, are, are as sweet as honey. Where Ezekiel, the prophet of doom and the prophet of judgment, when, 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 when God you know, says, eat the words I give you, these are words of judgment and doom and condemnation, and he eats the words and he says, it was as sweet as honey to me. Not because he gets off on, on people being judged and punished, but because everything God says is good and true and motivating and, and creates a sense of urgency for those who have been recipients and remain recipients of mercy. 
Their self-understanding is, is that, that, that they are unfinished, damaged, poor, needy, and beloved. Listen to what Henry Nouwen says. Every time you feel hurt, offended, or rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity, and held safe in an everlasting embrace. If you believe that all you need is Jesus and nothing else, that's true of you as well. You are the beloved. When you feel dirty, when you feel clean, when, when you just committed something that you never thought you, could, you had the capability of committing, or after you've had your best, most admirable, laudable, award-worthy day of being good. It's all the same. You meet Jesus on the ground, and He proposes marriage to you down there, and then He says, let's eat and drink. The social effect for Paul and Barnabas is, is notable as well. It says, when they journeyed on the way to Jerusalem, after essentially they were told that, that people like the Samaritans can't be saved unless they're, they're circumcised, it says they passed right through Samaria. They didn't go around it, didn't avoid it, went right through it, which is reminiscent of a similar experience in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus took his disciples not around Samaria, but through Samaria, and the, Samar the, the, the disciples had no idea why Jesus would do such a thing. Why would you expose us to such human uncleanliness? Why would, you, why would you bring us into the brothel that is Samaria with all of their bad doctrine and heresy and immorality, women at the well? Why would you do this, Jesus? Oh, we have an idea why you might do this. Are you going to call fire down on them? Are you going to burn them to smithereens in front of our eyes? Because that would be fun. And what, what does Jesus do? He rebukes not the Samaritans, but his disciples for daring to think that way. You think you're better than them? You think you've got a moral leg up on them? They are so much closer to the kingdom of God than you are with that attitude right now. So much closer. The party spirit is not the spirit of Christ. Jesus and nothing else, or else you've got nothing. And they wised up. But in passing through Samaria, Barnabas and Paul are sending a message. We need to create doors that even the Samaritans can pass through. Those are words that, that no circumcision party person or Pharisee party person would ever dream would come from the lips of a former Pharisee loyalist, party loyalist like Paul. When you become a Christian at that very moment, your identity takes a backseat to your union with Christ, which you share with every other believer in Christ throughout history and all over the world. It means that you are now and forever more Christian than you are Calvinist or Wesleyan. You are more Christian than you are your political party or your career path or your social status. You are more Christian than you are your marital status or your financial status. You are more Christian than you are your Enneagram number or your last name. 
You're more Christian than you are where you went to school or where you're going to school. The awards you've won or the awards you never won. You're more Christian than any of those things. As summarized by verse 19, Paul and Barnabas again, or Peter, we should not make it difficult for the other to turn to God. We should not get in the way with our stupid rules and our stupid parties. We should not get in the way. Finally, why? Because of the judge who bore our judgment. Who can be saved? Who can belong? I've already told you, Jesus and nothing else. That's what you've got to have. Here's how Jesus framed that. He says, come. Not to a list of rules, not to a particular culture or way of doing things. He says, come to me. All you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take Take my yoke, there's that word again, my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke, there it is again, is easy and my burden is light. This table says so much along those lines because it is open to everyone who believes. There, there are no doors here except the ones we create for ourselves. In the gospel, there's this hopeful promise from Jesus. In my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. I go not to make the door wider, but to eliminate the door for all those who have Jesus and nothing else. And in the meantime, we have the local church as a sign of that home, of that room that he prepares for all of us. What is membership in a local church? It's this joining your imperfect self to many other imperfect selves to form an imperfect community that through Jesus embarks on a journey toward a better, more life-giving, and ultimately perfect, flourishing future together under Christ. You realize in one sentence I used the word imperfect three times to make a point. We are unfinished. We are damaged. We are a hot mess, and we are beloved. And nothing can change that for those who have Jesus and nothing else. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the Great Supper. Talk about excess. You have never feasted like you're going to feast there, and this is just a, a sign and a pointer and a preparation for that. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine and Jesus is yours. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you, as you talk about this narrow path, even as you talk about the narrow path that leads to Christ, almost in the same breath sometimes, you talk about the broad embrace and the elimination of of doors and dividing walls. And we thank you, Lord, for that place that you prepare for us, which is the ultimate invitation and the ultimate welcome, the ultimate belonging is to belong with you, Lord. We're so grateful 
that all we have to have is Jesus and nothing else. Strengthen us in those realities, even as we receive your bread and your cup now, the body and the blood of Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.